When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The Bench For months now, while we've been reporting out this show, combing through the Fed's massive file on Chad Scott, we've also been working on something. Getting one person to sit down and talk with us. A guy who spent months retracing Chad's every step. More than any other case I've ever worked, this case has those, oh shit, moments. Those, wait a minute, what? Moments. This is the lead FBI investigator on Chad Scott's case. My name is Chip Hargrave. I'm a retired special agent of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and I worked for the FBI for 31 years. Chip recently retired from the FBI and moved with his wife to beautiful Pensacola, Florida. While we were trying to get him on the record, Chip was in a bad car accident. An 18-wheeler ran over his Jeep on the interstate. He broke his back. Chip was lucky to get out alive. A couple months after his accident, Feynman and I went to Chip's home and sat down with him in his man cave on leather armchairs. Chip is still wearing a back brace, but other than that, he seems to be doing well. As Chip would say, he's hard to kill. As you might have guessed, FBI agents rarely talk about their work. I'm still bound by agreements with the FBI, and so part of that, I need to read you what they don't want me to discuss. We ask that you please remember the following information when you speak on their FBI activities. But Chip wanted to talk with us about this case, the biggest in his career. For years during the Chad Scott investigation, we worked in parallel. Feynman and I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what Chip was doing and where he was heading next. And from behind the bureau doors, they were keeping tabs on our reporting, too. As you might imagine, the bureau is and always has been uh, very conscious of its portrayal in the media. I was being told that the case is being briefed to the director on a weekly basis. Now, you might think that that would create, you know, pressure for me, but it didn't. As you'll see, Chip has more than a little in common with Chad Scott. In a wild coincidence, they did go to the same high school in Baton Rouge. They were only two years apart. And they're both the tough-talking federal agent type, Louisiana lawmen. I was what's called KMA at the time. KMA as a bureau saying means kiss my ass. And it's when you have at least 20 years on and you're over age 50 as an agent, you're a senior 13, you're KMA. So I'm one bad day away from going, all right, you know, fine, here, here's my creds, here's my gun, send me my retirement, bye. Earlier in this show, I talked about one of the bizarre things about getting to know Chad. Generally, once you get to know somebody, you have a pretty fixed opinion of them. But that's never been the case with Chad. The things Chip would tell us in this five-hour interview changed our perspective on Chad yet again. In this episode, the penultimate of our series, we're finally getting the inside scoop directly from the man who went after Chad. This pulled back the curtain on a chapter of the case that has never been made public. Chip will tell us how Chad was ruined by the things that made him successful in the first place. 
coloring outside the lines, his terrifying reputation, his friends in high places. So far, being the legendary white devil has served Chad well. Drug dealers were terrified of him, and Chad's powerful allies have helped him avoid consequences. But the moment that Chip gets involved, the tide turns. I'm Jim Mustian. And I'm Feynman Robbins. From Neon Hum Media and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen, Betrayal on the Bayou. Episode 7, Inside the War Room. The feds file on Chad Scott, the one we've been using throughout our podcast. It's like a jigsaw puzzle with 10,000 pieces and no box. Until we talk to Chip, we've been missing the big picture. You know, the one on the front of the box. One of the things that we've known but not understood is that the feds went hard after some of Chad's powerful friends. One of them is Carl and Johnny's boss, Tangipoa Parish Sheriff Daniel Edwards, the governor's brother. It all became very public. Dozens of FBI agents surrounded the sheriff's office and the Hammond Police Department Thursday afternoon. We'll get to that later. Because what we haven't known until now is why the Fed's sprawling investigation ended in charges for Chad when Johnny and Carl would get plea deals. And why at one point, Chad's powerful allies were suspected of plotting with Chad himself. This is that part of the story. It's early 2016. Chip Hardgrave had just moved over from working street gangs to public corruption. My supervisor called me in and he said, do you know who Johnny Domain is? Johnny has just been caught selling drugs through Rose Graham. Chip hadn't met Johnny yet, but he was familiar with Chad because sometimes Chip's work in the FBI would cross over into DEA territory. I knew him through reputation as an extremely hard worker and that someone that really took care of business. And I knew that he had Tangipoa Parish just basically on lockdown. And when I was a supervisor, anything that would come across my desk was Tangipoa Parish. I would walk out, hey, make sure Chad gets this, because I knew it would be taken care of. Chad hasn't been suspended just yet, but he's been reassigned all the way up to New Jersey. I mean, other than being frigid cold in January, it is what it is, right? When the FBI starts monitoring the case, Chip and others in his department meet with the local investigators. And very quickly, there are warning signs that indicate that Chad's allies might be trying to interfere with the investigation. Now, when the case started, there was, I mean, I like to call it this unseen hand, right? There was a lot of obvious unseen forces working against this case. For example, when Johnny is being interviewed by the state police, Maurice Landrieu, a federal prosecutor and friend of Chad's, shows up at the interview. It's also worth noting for the listeners that Maurice's family is very powerful. You know, some people call them the Kennedys of Louisiana because, you know, you've got a former U.S. senator, you've got two mayors, and everybody involved are lawyers and judges and all this, and there's like nine kids, and there's, you know, a powerful person to have involved. Maurice Landrieu is a vocal supporter of Chad's. And his presence raised Chip's suspicions. We all looked at one another and said, why? One, why is he here? Two, why the hell does he have a federal proffer letter? This is a state. You know, what is this? We reached out to Maurice Landry for comment, and we never heard back. Next, 
a lawyer named Gary Jordan goes into the investigation room to talk to Johnny. The team have been told that he's Johnny's lawyer. Two or three minutes later, Gary Jordan comes out of that room and he is moving like somebody's lit him on fire. And he goes straight out the doors. And Johnny comes out and says, that guy's not my attorney. I ain't talking to him and I ain't talking to y'all. And he is visibly shaken. He is, looks afraid. And we all looked at one another like, what the hell just happened? Johnny very clearly knew that when Gary Jordan walked in that he was sent by Chad. And he took that as a, as a threat. This lawyer, Gary Jordan, he's a friend of Chad's. Chad had actually hired him to represent Johnny. And according to Johnny, Gary Jordan had been visiting him in jail. Even after Johnny explained that he had his own lawyer, Gary kept trying to coach him on what to say to the feds. We reached out to Gary Jordan for comment, and he didn't respond. Chad is a nexus of power in Louisiana. Apart from the Louisiana Kennedy, Maurice Landrieu, he's also a friend of Sheriff Daniel Edwards, whose brother is the governor. And Chip told us this story about how the investigation landed in his lap. What I was told happened is that the superintendent of the state police at the time, Mike Edmondson, got summoned to meet with the governor. And when he walked into the governor's office, the governor was sitting there with his brother, Daniel, and he was asked, what in the hell is going on with this investigation into the Tangipahoa Sheriff's Department? This is problematic because the head of the state police reports to the governor, and the governor is asking questions about an investigation into his brother. When Chip told us this story, I knew we need to look into it. We reached out to the three men involved and each have a different account. Both Edwards brothers say that the meeting Chip describes at the governor's mansion never happened. We reached out to Mike Edmondson, the former superintendent of the state police. He remembers going to the governor's mansion to brief him on the case, but can't recall if Sheriff Daniel Edwards was there too. We talked to Chip's former supervisor, Jeff Sillette. At the time, he was head of the FBI New Orleans field office. We talked with Jeff about how Chad's connections made the case more significant than a simple corrupt cop story. I would view it as you have a decorated DE agent who's been putting people in jail for a decade and, and a half in Louisiana, now under criminal investigation for really basically using techniques that could undermine every single case that he touched, which were a lot of cases. So when you're talking about significance, here's what I want to put in, kind of in, in, in the heads of your listeners. You're in Louisiana, which is a very, very insular state. Everybody knows everybody. You have somebody who's the sheriff for 30 years. Their father might have been the sheriff. Their brother might have been the sheriff. And their family has been in power for, I don't know, 120 years. He's referring to the Edwards family. Okay. Now you have a federal agent who also happens to be from the area right? And now you have a very incestuous, it's the same kind of model that happened in Boston that led to a John Conley and a Whitey Bulger. So to me, you know, as somebody who had seen that from the inside, right, had worked in Boston as a, as a special agent, had worked organized crime, to me, this represented a very significant case for the state of Louisiana and the rule of law. By the way, Jeff Sillette went on to become third in command at the FBI. When the FBI takes over the case from the state police, they get boxes and boxes of files. They dedicate a room in the New Orleans field office to the investigation. At the time in the New Orleans division, I was told by my bosses it was the most important public corruption investigation that was ongoing. 
There's a name for this kind of base where big cases are waged. It's a war room. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer. But he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and very white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers, Farian and Ingrid Siegeth, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed with mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. So the feds take over Chad's case. They'll need to figure out whether or not Chad's allies had been trying to sway the investigation. They create a war room to keep it all hush-hush. The reason we had this war room is because Chad had a lot of friends in our office. You know, I've, I've alluded to that. Is there like and an electronic there card is. access? Yes. And that's limited to... To basically... Um, the bosses and whoever I said could go in there. Once you're in the room, the walls are lined with whiteboards. There was a picture of Chad water skiing up there. Because as you guys know, he's a professional water skier, like fifth in the world in single ski slalom at one point, I believe. The feds had a 10-foot long rack with boxes of working materials and files, a computer setup, a long conference table. They traveled all over the South for interviews. We've been hearing some of them throughout this podcast. They talked to Booby about how Chad strong-armed him. He told her, tell Booby he need to get in touch with me, I'm gonna lock his ass up. So I was like, damn. The feds talked to one of the agents who blew the whistle on Chad back in the early 2000s. You know, we felt that we were being discredited. Not a whine like a little bitch, but I mean, it was obvious that this group was completely out of control. They also tracked down the lawyer Chad sent to Johnny. We're telling you flat out to your face, if we wanted to leave in handcuffs with you today, we could do that. We're not looking to do that. And we're not threatening you in any way. We're just telling you man to man, like, you know, we could charge you. They grill Maurice Landrieu, the Louisiana Kennedy prosecutor. 
So you don't recall vouching for Chad or saying that Chad wasn't involved and had no misconduct involved in the investigation? At that meeting? Correct. No. Specifically, do you have a recollection of saying this style said Chad ain't done that? I don't think I said that. I may have, That may have come out of my mouth after the captain said that. Chip told us about a lot of stuff we haven't heard much of. Namely, civil rights violations. These conversations we don't have on tape because some victims were too afraid to talk. People were scared to death of Chad. And there was a couple times that uh, there, one person in particular, I said, well, why did you never call the FBI? And they were like, well, Chad is the feds. Like, they didn't even differentiate between FBI, DEA, anything, you know. Chad was just the feds. We also talked with another former FBI agent, Mike Zummer, who was briefly on Chip's team. He was in on some of those interviews with Chip. And what I saw were the allegations of abuse, you know, physical abuse. And that really troubled me. One of the many stories they hear is about how Chad brutally beat a suspect. And everybody talked about this beating. And apparently it happened in the Tangy Jail which is a whole other mess on its own, as you guys know. And apparently, Chad beat this one guy so severely and ripped dreadlocks out of his hair that the other prisoners could say, yeah, I could hear him screaming and screaming, and he cried for hours even after Chad left, and I could see that it literally ripped his scalp off, and or, you know, large chunks, large braids of his hair, and threw it in the middle of the, the, the holding end, and everybody could see it. This story is gruesome, and it's terrifying enough that no one would want to mess with Chad. But was it true? The feds had heard it from people who couldn't see what happened, but had heard it from nearby jail cells. Mike and Chip's next step is to see if they can substantiate it. They need to get in contact with the victim. We went to his mom's house, Mike and I, Mike Zummer, and uh, knocked on her door and uh, Ma'am, you know, my name is Chip Hargrave from the FBI. This is my partner, Mike Zummer. We're investigating civil rights violations. Uh, We understand that your son was badly beaten by Chad Scott, and we are investigating Chad Scott for this and other matters. And the woman, I've been doing this three decades, and I've never seen this reaction from anybody. She was stone silent for about 30 seconds and was staring up at the sky with her mouth wide open and all of a sudden she let out this huge long wail and said, oh my God, y'all are gonna get my baby killed and fell down on the couch. And she um, she was bawling crying, said, he will kill my boy, he will kill my boy, he will kill my boy. And I mean, just she had this look of absolute fear for her son. And it was disgusting, you know, to think that this woman is afraid for her son's life just because we're asking questions about a federal agent. And, and I, I nudge Mike and this man, let's, let's, you know, this, this isn't the way we need to go. And um, we said, ma'am, listen, we, we understand. We're not going to chase him down, all right? If he wants to talk to us, Here's uh, Mike. Mike gave her his number. So just have him call us. Not long after we were driving away, and her son called and basically just said 
he was afraid to talk to us. He was so scared of not just Chad Scott, but all of Chad's friends, me and other criminals, and the police, that when he was done with his federal probation, he was leaving the state. But what was really interesting is, you know, he was, but, you know, keep looking. You know, he wanted us to find something, but he was just afraid to come forward. They weren't ever able to confirm the beating because apparently it happened in a section of the Tangipahoe Parish Jail that the cameras don't cover. However, Chip and his team do find other victims. A man who says that Chad beat him against a concrete floor while he was in custody. They see evidence of the injuries still written on his body, and he is willing to talk to the feds. This is the type of allegation that Jim and I have been hearing for years. It's part of the reason some people call Chad the white devil. We asked Chad for comment. He said it never happened. The feds are building their case against Chad that eventually they will take to court. But while they're interviewing witnesses, the unseen hand is at work. Chad's allies are still trying to sway things in the Golden Boy's favor. Chip is in charge. Johnny's got Queen for a day, an opportunity to tell the feds everything and not have his words used against him later in court. So Johnny turns on Chad. And then this curious thing happens. Chip starts hearing that the state investigation that's supposed to be over and done with is still going strong. Chip gets a call in the spring of 2016. It's Tangipoa Parish Sheriff, brother of the governor, Daniel Edwards. And he said, I'd like to set up a meeting to talk to you. Chip also has information coming in from sources working in the sheriff's office. And what Chip is hearing is that somebody in the office is pulling sealed documents about Johnny Domain's agreement with the feds. And I was like, that's interesting. And he goes, so look, man, something's up. I don't know what it is, you know, but I see these guys all huddled up. And one of them actually said that the sheriff wants them looking at Johnny Domain. I was like, uh, okay. Now, this person didn't know that I'd spoken with the sheriff just a few minutes ago. And he goes, so listen, man, something's up. I don't know what it is, but there is something going on. This is what's going on. Chip and his team might have moved on from Johnny, who has become a star witness. But Chad's allies and local law enforcement haven't. They're still investigating Johnny's misconduct. Here's the sheriff. Johnny Domain would do things like, instead of paying his informant cash, he'd pay him in pills. Or he would set up to make a buy. Instead of the buy going down, Johnny Domain is just take the drugs from him and tell him to get the hell away and, and keep their mouth shut. Even though they know Johnny's already cooperating with the feds, they meet with a prosecutor to go over their evidence. The prosecutor has some feedback. He thought maybe I needed to let the FBI know. I said, okay, which agent do you want me to call? And he tells me I should call Chip Hargrave. Hammond PD and the sheriff's office have been doing this whole investigation without the FBI's knowledge. And at this point in the spring, it's public information that Johnny had already taken a plea and was cooperating with the feds. We were publishing stories about it in the paper. Might have been fine that they were looking into this stuff. But they're doing more than that. They're looking to get warrants drawn up for Johnny's arrest. But in any event, so I meet with Chip Hargrave in my office. Here's Chip. And the sheriff proceeds to say that the Hammond Police Department has an active investigation in the Johnny domain. We have reason to believe that he has committed more crimes than what he admitted to in his proffer statement. And we wanted to make sure that you guys are aware of it. But the sheriff leaves out that they're getting warrants signed. 
And he doesn't let the FBI know that the local police is planning to arrest their witness while he's out on bail. The feds learned that from an informant. Chip gets a phone call at 8 o'clock at night. Look, man, I just want you to know that the Hammond Narcotics Unit has drawn up arrest papers for Johnny Domain, and they're going to get him signed tomorrow morning. Listen, their plan is to arrest him and get him into Tangipahoa Parish Jail where, and this is the guy quoting what he said, where they said, and I quote, some real bad things are going to happen to him. A great deal of harm is going to come to him. And I'm like, oh, shit, they're going to kill our only witness. One of the officers planning to arrest Johnny is fellow task force member Rodney Guimar. Johnny has told the feds detailed accounts of Rodney's misconduct. And now Rodney has the power to put Johnny in the local jail that's notorious for inmates beating and even killing each other. Chip's informant says that Johnny is going to be arrested. He goes, look, man, I, I'm pretty sure there's a patrol unit down the street from his place now. And, you know, this, this is a real oh shit moment, you know? And um, are you scared? I'm afraid they're going to kill the guy. He goes, I think they're going to kill him. So that's all I have to base it on. It's not like I can call him up and say, hey, you guys are taking Johnny to the Tanju jail. You don't plan on killing him or anything, do you? You know, so I have to act as if this information is 100% true. They might not have been able to ask the sheriff if there was a plot to kill Johnny, but we can. And this is what sparked the late night frantic search for Johnny, and right, and led to him going into federal protective custody in Houston. I, I mean, I can't answer that. I mean, what, what was the concern? I think the concern was they were worried that Johnny was going to get hurt or that if he went into the Tangipahoa Parish Jail, okay. he might never come out. Okay. Well, I mean, that's, that, to me, that's a silly concern. I mean, because if the man had committed the crimes, which they had the evidence for and they had the probable cause for, I mean, he needs the answer for him. Chip calls his team who book it to pick up Johnny. And the feds slap a falsification of government records charge on Johnny so that they can hold him. Once his initial appearance was over, we immediately took him to the Federal Detention Center in Houston. We wanted him out of the state of Louisiana. We felt like he was not safe anywhere in the state. So, this is what happened that led the feds to believe that Sheriff Daniel Edwards was in on something. That he'd been scheming in some way with Chad that he might have something to hide. Dozens of FBI agents surrounded the sheriff's office and the Hammond Police Department Thursday afternoon. About six months after Johnny was placed in protective custody, the FBI executes warrants on the two local law enforcement agencies that had tried to arrest Johnny. One of the places they raid is Sheriff Daniel Edwards' office. Jim and I were there reporting for the paper. The New Orleans Advocate reports that one item taken from the annex was a computer from Sheriff Daniel Edwards' office. Edwards is the brother of Governor John Bell Edwards. It was a circus. The single-story brick building was completely shut down. A tall FBI agent in tactical gear was turning cars away, folks coming in trying to pay their property taxes. The local news channels had film crews at the scene interviewing looky-loos. I received a text from my sister that the FBI was raiding the Hammond PD, so I've just been kind of riding around, looking, seeing, taking pictures. It must be something bad. An FBI press person was hurting the media and offering no comments right and left. Chip's boss, the head of the New Orleans FBI field office, Jeff Sillette, made a statement at the scene. 
any information that you would have that you believe would be relevant to the FBI or our law enforcement partners, please bring to our attention. Governor John Bell Edwards was asked about the raid during a press conference. I obviously don't have um, much information about what they were looking for, why they chose to um, operate in the manner that they did. I just don't have a clue, but I can tell you what I do have a clue about. Uh, That's my brother, Daniel. I was the seventh of eight children. He was the eighth of eight. Without any fear of contradiction or ever being proven wrong, I will tell you now, he did not engage in anything improper, much less uh, illegal. And I have all the confidence in the world in that, and I think time will bear that out. As reporters back then, we didn't know whether this was a fishing expedition or whether they had reason to target Sheriff Daniel Edwards. In our interview, Chip explained. So this thing was twofold. One, it was an understanding that if they are engaged in this conspiracy to impede our investigation, there's going to be documentation of it. And also, it was a way to let everybody up there know that if you try this with us, we are going to bring the full force of the federal government against you. So it would be better if you just backed off and let us do our job. And, you know, it's kind of like... You don't want to sit right on the rail at the NASCAR track, guys. You kind of want to sit this one out. The feds were sending a message, but they were also looking for evidence of obstruction of justice. Well, we were really hoping to find any kind of documentation, whether on paper or electronic, showing the directives like, hey, this is what you need to do. Emails going back and forth saying, uh, you know, I've spoken with the FBI guys. Uh, Just anything that would point to any sort of conspiracy. Basically, we were throwing kind of a a dragnet to see, what are you guys up to on behalf of Chad? We asked Sheriff Daniel Edwards if he intentionally misled the FBI about a plot to arrest Johnny. If the FBI didn't gather that, you know, the reason that Hammond PD was doing an investigation was on state-level charges, and the reason, you know, that they wanted people to know that there was significant evidence is because warrants would be trying to be attained, I mean, I can't help the FBI if they didn't see that coming. You know, I I, I really, I'm not trying to demean anybody, but I didn't lie to them and I didn't mislead them. The feds tore apart the sheriff's office, had him open up his safe, took his computer, went through his email, text, and phone records. We asked Chip about it. Would you describe the raid as a success? No. Um, And I'm the only one that personally went through all 176 boxes of that evidence that we seized. And uh, no, there was was no evidence of any, any crimes. On this count, Sheriff Daniel Edwards agreed. There's not one piece of evidence, not one, not one text message, not one phone call, not one document that was that, that was introduced into evidence, or even attempted to be introduced into evidence, that came from that raid on that day. When I tell you it was an absolute, I mean, it was a strikeout. It was a zero. They need to answer for that. They need to answer for that. Jim asks if the sheriff thinks the feds owe him an apology. They owe the people of Tangeville Parish an apology. That's what they owe. Chip had a different take. Yeah, well, there were numerous numerous citizens of his parish that were victimized by this guy, Chad Scott. So if there's any apologies going on, it needs to be the sheriff to the people that he represents. 
So, after the feds raided the sheriff's office and found nothing, the sense that there could be a greater conspiracy dried up. Their suspicions on the Louisiana Kennedy, Maurice Landrieu, didn't go anywhere either. And I do want to say that Maurice was on the front end of the things, and I think he was, I genuinely believe that he believed that that Chad was a good guy and that this was a huge mistake, and he wanted to uh, stop something from happening to what he believed was a very good agent. Chad is the biggest fish the feds have on the line. Chip's team has heard about what Chad is capable of, but they don't have much proof they can bring to court. Lucky for them, it's around this time that Carl breaks and decides to start cooperating with the feds. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch, involved in a then-unheard-of secret organization called the Illuminati, and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. Over the course of the investigation, Chip has heard a lot of things about Chad. Well, there were a lot of allegations made against Chad that we believe are true, but just couldn't prove. We had information from multiple drug dealers that Chad was taking money. Chip says that they heard for a price. A drug dealer could pay Chad to protect loads of drugs while they were being transported from Houston to Atlanta. That Chad would skim money off bus and give his super informants drugs to deal on his behalf. That he'd make drug dealers pay to be on his A-team. And said, here's how this is going to work. You're going to join what, what they called the A-team. If you get on the A-team, you know, you're going to be okay. You're going to pay monthly for Chad's protection. If you don't do this, Chad's going to make sure that you go across the lake and he's going to get you 40 years. But did you also notice a gulf between what actually was occurring and what was being attributed to Chad? Maybe that there was a sort of myth about Chad, even as he was breaking the law. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely there was. And that was a big part of the investigation, was trying to figure out what was, what was myth and what was stories that, that, that Chad definitely used to advantage to keep the scare on people. And that's pretty smart. And, and what the tr- truth of the matter really was. If anybody could, at least in theory, sort the fact from the fiction, it would be Carl, Chad's right-hand man for over a decade. Well, in a room full of feds in March of 2017, Carl comes in with the details. Right off the bat, he admits to bringing a variety of drugs to Kentucky for recreational use. Yes. Helping Booby perjure himself. Right. Correct. He tells them about keeping wallets from people they'd arrested. The money we put in the pile, counted up, and then split it up amongst. Who's we? Uh, mainly it was uh, Chad, Rodney, and myself. And then Johnny come on the scene, and uh, we split money up with Johnny also. But this other mythological tier? Carl doesn't have the answers they're looking for. A prosecutor asks if Chad was taking bribes from informants. Do you know about them ever accepting money or drugs on Chad's behalf? No, that I don't know. I don't really understand. To get on the A-team, I guess. Yeah, like, for instance, you know. This is Chip in the investigation room. He asks about another allegation. 
Chad's informant's selling drugs for him. Guy has five kilos. Let's say he gets charged with two and the other three kilos go to Chad's informants for them to sell on his behalf. Ooh, okay. You know, have any knowledge? I've like never that? had any knowledge like that. As far as I know, Chad's never, never stole any drugs or moved any drugs as far as I know. I've never seen that happen or even heard of it. I was, I was waiting to ask this, but like before the first proffer we ever had, uh, you, you had mentioned to your attorney here that you could uh, give us Chad as a multi-kilo dealer. Well, it was, it was that multi-kilos were allowed to be moved, uh, delivered, and, uh, and that was that deal. The, the Frederick Brown? Right, deal? they went to okay. Atlanta. You know, he Did he let, knowingly let, let those kilos walk? What Carl is talking about here is that Chad chose to bust Booby's $850,000 rather than seize the drugs. We talked with Chip about it. So my same DEA counterpart over there was telling me that there was increased pressure on them at that time of the year because it's coming up to the close of the fiscal year to have more financial seizures. They were under a lot of pressure for that. And I think, and again, I'm, I'm putting myself in Chad's position, so it's speculation. I think he saw an opportunity to give the bosses exactly what they wanted and also put another feather in his cap. But this is an issue, because while it might be objectionable conduct, it's systemic, not illegal. This is Michael Gannon, the Boston accent from DEA Internal Affairs. But that's what I'm trying to figure out. So when you talk about criminal activity that you participated in with Chad Scott, mm -hmm. what else is there than right now, you've told us that you guys would take money that people would get arrested and it would sit in like a, a file cabinet for a long period of time. Like, what else was done with you and, and Chad? As far as illegal? Yes. Activity? That's what I'm saying is, to my knowledge, Chad, the only illegal activity that Chad, that I knew he committed, was basically what I've told you as far as taking money and stuff. Carl has agreed to testify. But when it comes down to it, he says he doesn't know all that much. So where does that leave the feds? What charges will they actually be able to bring against Chad? We have a video from our files. It's dated about six months after Carl's interview. It starts off high in the clouds above the serpentine streets of a North Shore subdivision. The clouds drift by. You can see dense green woods, a corner of a lake. It's oddly peaceful. The eye of the camera drifts and then finds focus, zooms in on one beige house with a green lawn and a carport. It's Chad Scott's family home. The FBI is watching his every move. Next time, on our finale of Betrayal on the Bayou. The feds arrest Chad. I mean, as soon as I breached the jetway, like 10 or 12, 13 guys come running down like Ghostbusters. They aren't taking any chances that Chad would get out of their hands. There's an FBI plane in the air, and they'd even let the air out of his tires. Yes, I did. You did? I did. Now, I didn't slash the tires. I just let the air out of them. Chad is going to jail. Spent the whole night listening to you motherfucker. Just sitting there thinking, how, how did I get here? 
What in the world did I do to get here? That's next time on our final episode of Smokescreen, Betrayal on the Bayou. Unlock all episodes of Smokescreen, Betrayal on the Bayou, ad-free right now by subscribing to the Binge podcast channel. Not only will you immediately unlock all episodes of this show, but you'll get binge access to an entire network of other great true crime and investigative podcasts, all ad-free. Plus, on the first of every month, subscribers get a binge drop of a brand new series that's all episodes, all at once. Unlock your listening now by clicking subscribe at the top of the Smokescreen show page on Apple Podcasts or visit getthebinge.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts. Smokescreen, Betrayal in the Bayou is an original production by Neon Hum Media and Sony Music Entertainment. It was written and produced by Odelia Rubin. It was reported by me, Feynman Roberts, and my co-host, Jim Mustian. Our editor is Catherine St. Louis. She is also Neon Hum Media's executive editor. Our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Sound design and mixing by Scott Somerville. Theme and original music composed by Hansdale Shee. We also use music by Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Our associate producer is Ann Lim. Fendel Fulton is our fact checker. Our production manager is Samantha Allison. Alexis Martinez is our podcast coordinator. Special thanks to Stephanie Serrano, Mia Warren, and Kate Mishkin. And to our consultants, Skip Sewell and Chip Hardgrave. We couldn't have made this show without the support of our legal team, including Lauren Pagoni, Rachel Goldberg, and Allison Sherry. I'm Feynman Roberts. And I'm Jim Mustian. If you're enjoying the show, be sure to rate and review. It helps more people find it and hear our reporting. Thanks for listening.